Good morning. morning. I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Be in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. For those of you who uh, weren't here last week, uh, I made a note that we uh, have put uh, pressed pause on our uh, our Acts series, going through uh, the book of Acts. We'll pick that up again in January. Uh, but for now, we want to take a, just a brief moment to uh, to go through a series we're calling uh, "Catching the Vision." Like we want to know who we're supposed to be, who is God calling us to be as a church, and so we're we're walking through uh, our mission statement, our value statements through uh, through Scripture. Uh, so we don't want to just be people who. Uh, have catchy slogans that we are pursuing. We want to be people who are rooted and grounded in the Word of God and are pursuing um, the Word of God in all things. And so uh, we are looking at the Word of God to to find these uh, ideas of who we're supposed to be, uh, who, are, who is God calling us to be. So last week we talked about uh, the second part of the mission statement, that we are to, uh, to, to be living for eternity today. Right? This week we're going to be talking about the fact that we are a family of faith, that that family of faith aspect, and that really comes out in our first value. Uh, our first value statement is that we need to foster authentic community. What we as a church want to do is foster authentic community. We value an unwavering commitment to meeting needs and doing life together as a diverse, gospel-centered community of believers. So we're going to be talking about this, that this morning from Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, beginning in verse 1. Let me, uh, let me read this for us, and then we'll get into it. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, says this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led host, a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We pray for us. Holy Father, I thank you for your church. I thank you that we are not uh, independent soloists, that you didn't just leave us on our own, you didn't save us and then just abandon us, but God, you have brought us into your body, the church. I pray, Father, that we would be a people that are 
seeking you. That we would be a people that, that want to know your word and want to, to uh, embody your word. That we would want to be a people that glorify and lift you up in everything that we do. So Father, speak to us this morning from your word. Give us ears to hear and a heart that is ready to apply what you're teaching us from your word this morning. We love you and praise you. It's in your precious holy name that we pray. Amen. The United States is fiercely independent. Like our culture champions this radical uh, individualism, right? This self-centered way of thinking. Uh, we know this in sports, right? Sports coaches, sports teams are constantly trying to overcome this. We don't see it any, uh, we see it best in the world of basketball, which is very personality driven, where you only have five guys out on a court at a time, and so you can, you can have a little bit bigger ego because you have a bigger percentage of the game relying on you. And so we see this all the time in basketball. Think of the Brooklyn Nets last year. It was one of the most disappointing teams in the NBA. They had three major superstars and then just a, a star-studded roster all the way down. Like they, they had all the individual pieces, but they didn't work together well. They didn't mesh well. You have guys like James Harden, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, who all want the ball in their hands. They all want to be the one that's taking the shot because they're thinking individually. And so they got to the playoffs and they were eliminated pretty early, uh, despite being a roster that should have easily won uh, the, the championship. Uh, we saw it again a few years ago with the Oklahoma City Thunder. Uh, they're again, big team, a uh, lot of good players on it. They had again, Harden, Kevin Durant, they had Russell Westbrook, three of the best players in the NBA, all on the same team. And every year, they just disappointed in the playoffs. Again, because it's full of people who are acting independently. They never got over their, their uh, individualism to come together as a team to try to win. Contrast that with a team like the, my favorite, the San Antonio Spurs. Um, I know that some of you <laughs> don't agree with me on this. Um, but you can't, you can't deny that the Spurs had a culture as a, as a sports team that is not personality driven. They think more collectively. They think more as a team. So even when they've had really good players, they come together as a team more to try to win for the sake of the team. They, they each player knows their role in the, in the team as a whole, and they want to do that well so that the team as a whole can thrive. And so people who are really good are willing to take a back seat if it means the team is going to thrive and win. So that's what coaches are constantly trying to overcome is this individualism, this, this independent attitude that I'm in it for me. Like, what's in it for me? Uh, how am I going to benefit from this? How am I going to get better? It's all about me, and that's American culture. I think about it in our workplace. Uh, for so many of us, uh, we enter our jobs, and we, we don't think about how we fit into the company as a whole and how we can help the whole company thrive and succeed. What we think about is, hey, I want to be noticed, right? I'm going to do my job the best I can so that my boss will notice me and promote me. I want to do my job the best I can to build the best resume so I'll get hired somewhere else and get a better paycheck. Like we think independently and individually when we come together in a workplace and in our lives. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that cultural attitude. There, are, there are, uh, are other cultures that are more collectivistic, meaning they think of themselves more as a group. Uh, and there's nothing inherently better in one culture or another. Both have their benefits, both have their downfalls, if we're talking about living biblically. But the problem comes when that independent, individualistic attitude seeps into the church. 
And if we took a poll of all the churches in America, what we're going to see is a fiercely independent, individualistic, consumer Christianity. Right? We would see Christians... Uh, think about the music time, where all they want is their preference of music. Like, what, what am I going to enjoy the most? So when we come in, we don't, uh, we don't come in to worship wanting to lift up the Lord in praise. We don't come in to worship wanting to sing gospel songs and teach gospel truths to one another. We come in to worship wanting to be entertained by the singer, by the band. We want it to sound really good. We want it to, to be the best that it can possibly be. Because we want it to be our style. We want it to be what we like. And so our approach is very individualistic when it comes to music. When we think of the sermon time, what we think about is, what can I get out of this? How is God speaking to me? And th there's a part of that that's good. <laughs> God is speaking to every single one of us through his word. But the, the primary focus of this time in the word of God is not what is God speaking to you individually, but what is God speaking to us as a body of believers? If you take home what the word of God is saying and you apply it to your life, great. But if nobody else around you does, then we have wasted our time. And so we, but we think individualistically when it comes to our, our time in, uh, in the sermon, in the word of God. Think about our spiritual growth. We talk about our own growth in the Lord. What are we focused on? We're focused on our growth, like how I'm growing in the Lord. So we focus a lot on our time in the Word alone. We focus a lot on our time in prayer alone. We focus a lot on, on how I'm growing in the Lord and how the Lord is, is growing me and my faith. And all of those things are good. Praise God that you spend time in His Word. Praise God that you pray and spend time uh, lifting up uh, other people, lifting up yourself to the Lord in prayer. Praise God, and praise God that you're growing in your faith. But when the Bible talks about spiritual growth, it doesn't talk about your growth, it talks about our growth, more often than not. What Scripture is more concerned with is our collective growth in the image of Jesus, not just your own. And if you're growing, but everybody else around you is stuck, then again, what benefit is that? We have approached Christianity, the, the, the programs in our church, the, the, the children's ministry, the student ministry, we've approached the things that the church offers in a very individualistic consumer mentality because we're not focused on others, we're not focused on how we fit into the group, we're not focused on the group growing into the image of Jesus, we are focused on ourselves. What are my preferences? What is it that I want? What is it that, uh, that I can get from this? They're very inward, independent, individualistically focused. And that's across the country, that is, in churches across the United States, just kind of a broad swath. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we have succumbed to those ideas in one way or another. Maybe not in every area of the church, but, but if we're honest, we know that having grown up in the United States, having embodied this independent, individualistic mentality, we have brought that into the church. We are uh, thinking uh, along the lines of a consumer Christianity, uh, a Christianity that is focused on me and what I can do and how I can grow and how I can benefit. The early church, uh, they were way more collectivistic than we were. And so the, the, the culture that the early church was started in and founded in, that culture was way more collectivistic. Thinking They thought of themselves way more as a group than we do. But their problem that uh, Paul is dealing with in the book of Acts is they weren't sure who's, who to include in the group. And they were thinking of themselves as a group, 
But in their case, they had Jews and they had Gentiles. There were people who had grown up as the people of God, and there were people who had not grown up as the people of God. And their question is, who are the people of God? Who, who are we including in God's people? Because the Jews would say, that's us. Like we, we have always been God's people. We'll always be God's people. We are, we are God's people. So Jews that become Christians are saying, yeah, we're God's people. And the Gentiles are not. There are other people in the church saying, well, no, Jews are God's people. And then Christians, Gentiles who look like Jews, you know, and become Jews and act like Jews, those are also part of God's people. And then there are other people saying, no, it's, it's Jews are God's people, but then Gentiles are, who are believers are the second-class citizenry in God's people. What Paul does in Ephesians chapter 2 is he teaches everybody and reminds everybody who's listening, all Christians, of the gospel. He reminds them of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. He, he, he reminds them that every single one of us was dead in our trespasses and our sins. That every single one of us has fallen short of God's standard of perfection. That we are all broken and unholy and unrighteous people. And so we were all dead. But God, because of his great mercy and the love with which he loved us, sent Jesus to die for us so that we could be made alive. He reminds them of that beautiful gospel truth that it is only by the blood of Jesus, it is only by grace that we're saved. There's no amount of boxes we can check. There's no amount of good things we can do to earn the favor of God. It is only by the grace of God, by the free gift of eternal life that he provides that we're saved. That's the gospel. And so then he pivots from that and he, he, he shares the good news to all of the Gentile Christians who are there. He says, if you are a believer, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, God has brought you into the church. Jew and Gentile alike. He teaches this at the end of Ephesians chapter 2 and then all of Ephesians chapter 3. Jew and Gentile alike have been brought into the church. It doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, we are all on the same standing, right? We were all dead. We have all been saved by the blood of Jesus. We're all on the same standing. And so we have all been brought together into his body, the church, if you've placed your faith in Jesus. It doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. It doesn't matter what your country of origin is. It doesn't matter what your, the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter what your job is or what your bank account says. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. None of those things matter because at the end of the day, we are all on the same footing if we have placed our faith in Jesus. He has brought all of us together into his body, the church. And what we see in Ephesians chapter 4 is Paul pivots from there, from that, that beautiful, glorious truth that we've been brought together into the, into the church to what should we do. The second half of Ephesians, beginning in chapter 4, he pivots from what's true, and then he, he begins to tell us what should we do about it. And what we're going to see in the first part of Ephesians chapter 4 is that as people who've been brought together in the church, we need to, uh, we need to, li uh, to foster authentic community instead of living individual lives. Right? Our unity, the fact that we've been brought together in the church, compels us to foster authentic community instead of pursuing individual lives. We see that in Ephesians chapter 4 in two ways. Because Paul is going to teach us two things that we need to do as Christians. Two things that we need to do as members 
of the body of Christ. The first thing that he teaches us that we need to do, the first thing we need to do is to promote unity. Look with me in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, let's stop there for a second. When you and I read this verse, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, most of the time when we think about that, when we think about how to apply it, we're still thinking individually. We are still thinking uh, with this independent, self-focused mentality. And so we think, great, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Basically, walk like a Christian. Act and live like a Christian. So what we start to think and what our mind starts to go to is, okay, these are the sins that I need to stop. And these are the good things that I need to do as a follower of Jesus. I need to live as a redeemed person. I need to live as somebody who is, who is walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which I've been called. We're thinking very individually and independently when we think of this verse. And, and those are good things, right? You need to walk in a way that is glorifying and honoring to the Lord. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, which means we were saved, we were set free from sin and death, and we were, we were freed to do good things. We were freed to glorify God in our lives. So yes, you need to go live a life that is glorifying and honoring to God. You need to live a life that has uh, been set free from sin and is adding to your life the things that are glorifying and honoring to the Lord. You need to do that. But what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 4 is not an individualistic, independent uh, command. He's not saying you stop sinning and you start glorifying God. He's saying you need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And look what he means by that, beginning in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Everything that follows that command is all about the unity of the church. Walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called means promoting the unity of the body of Christ. Because a disunified, fractured body of Christ is not a church that is walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. This beautiful calling is the fact that we've all been saved, we've all been set free, if we've placed our faith in Jesus, and we've all been brought together on the same footing in the same level into his one body, the church. And a church that then goes from there and fractures and divides and goes all over the place and is full of contention and, and uh, anger and malice and wrath, a church that is filled with all of those things is not a church that is walking worthy of the manner with which you've been called. Paul calls us in Ephesians chapter 4 to promote unity in the church. Look what he says in verse 2. We need to act with all humility. And humility needs to be what characterizes all of our interactions with one another. There is no reason for any of us to feel and think that we are better than any other believer. Because we have all been set free by Jesus. There are no, there are no different tiers of Christianity. Right? There's, no, uh, there's no better Christian than, than somebody else. All of us have been set free by Jesus. Nobody has a higher standing in God's eyes than another believer. 
We have all been set free by Jesus. So there is no excuse, there is no reason to think that we are better than any other believer, anybody else for whom Christ has died, because we've all been set free by Jesus. It is the one thing that unites every single one of us. We've all been set free by the blood of Jesus. And so humility should be what marks our interactions with one another. If the way that we think about another Christian, if the way that we interact with another Christian gives off the idea that we are somehow superior or better than them, then we are not walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Our interactions need to be uh, marked by humility. Now, one way that this manifests itself is when we disagree on Bible interpretations. There are things that we have to agree on. The gospel. Right? Because if we're preaching a different gospel, then you're not really part of the church, right? Because the thing that unites us is the gospel. It's salvation in Jesus Christ. And so if you're preaching salvation is in Jesus or some other things, then you're not preaching the gospel. You've not been set free by, by the blood of Jesus. And so you haven't been brought into the church. So you're not actually unified with us. We don't have to, uh, to accept people who are preaching different gospels for the sake of being nice and patient and and, and unified. Like, we have to be united in the gospel. That, that is the one thing that unites every single one of us. That is the one thing that we share, that we all have to proclaim. But there are other things in the Bible that we don't have to agree on interpretation-wise. Let's say, for instance, that you believe in a rapture. So you believe that, that Jesus Christ uh, is going to come back and he's going to rapture us, take us up with him before any tribulation hits the world, a seven-year tribulation. And you believe that we will get taken up. And there's another Christian in the church who doesn't believe there's a rapture and believes that Christians will go through any tribulation found in Revelations before Christ returns and ultimately puts an end to it. Those are two different biblical interpretations. And it's just based on how you view Scripture. And you can, you can be totally sure that you're right. <laughs> you can believe that all the Scriptures line, uh, align with you. You can believe that you have interpreted this the correct way. But at the end of the day, humility needs to be what marks your relationship with another believer because that believer is someone for whom Christ has died. That believer is someone who has been united with you in the gospel. And as long as he or she is proclaiming the same gospel as you and coming to a different interpretation of the scripture, we need to, come, uh, we, we need to approach our conversations with them with all humility, knowing we're not infallible. And even if we are convinced that we're right, even if we, have, we are 100% certain that the scriptures align with us, we can proclaim that to them, we can teach them what we believe the scriptures mean, but our interactions with them still needs to be one of humility. Because we're not better than somebody because we believe a certain way in the Bible. We're not better than someone because we interpret passages in one way or another. We are all on the same footing in the eyes of God if we've been set free from sin and death by Jesus Christ. So humility needs to be the way that we interact with one another. And praise God if there are other believers who believe slightly differently than us, but they are preaching the same gospel in Jesus Christ. And let's have the humility to say that we are not 100% perfect and 100% infallible, and that everybody who disagrees with us on every, every opinion of biblical interpretation is lost and going to hell. <laughs> Let's 
praise God for this, those who believe and promote the same gospel in Jesus Christ and all other things. Let's have humility. Allow that to be what unites us. Allow that humility to be what defines us. We need to interact with one another with all humility, with gentleness. There is no harsh response, no harsh interaction between believers that's going to be glorifying and honoring to God. Like if our actions, if, our, if the way that we interact with one another are not modeled by gentleness, are not marked by, by gentleness, then it's not glorifying and honoring to the Lord. We need to be gentle in our approach to one another. Again, this is a fellow brother or sister, someone for whom Christ has died, someone who believes the same gospel, and so we need to be gentle in our approach, and our proclamation to one another. Again, we can believe that, they, that, that something that they believe is wrong. We can, we can believe that something that they're doing is wrong, but we need to approach that with gentleness, making sure that it's evident that we love one another. He goes on. Interact with patience. Again, we all, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, have received the same Holy Spirit. You have, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you've been brought into the church, you have received the Holy Spirit. And we have to believe that the same Holy Spirit that's doing a work in my life is doing a work in your life. And so as we interact with one another, as we as we teach one another as we study scripture together, as we, as we live life together, we need to interact with patience with one another, knowing that the Holy Spirit that we have that has got us to where we are today is the same Holy Spirit that is guiding and convicting and, 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 and leading a fellow believer. And so if we have gotten further in our faith, if we have grown in certain areas by the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to trust that the Holy Spirit is working in their life to get them there too. So don't become frustrated and angry with each other. Be patient with our interactions with one another. And that all comes to a head in verse, uh, the end of verse 4 when he says, bearing with one another in love. We need to, to put up with one another, bear with one another in love for one another. I hate the phrase that I, I've heard uh, repeated so often growing up, uh, I have to love that person, but I don't have to like them. I, I hate that phrase. That is a, a markedly unbiblical idea. Like you don't, I, I can't fathom trying to put those two ideas together, that I really dislike that person. I have a, I have a deep-seated disdain for that person, but I love them. Like those two ideas are not the same. They are mutually exclusive. I'm not saying that you have to get along with everybody famously, but we should love one another. And that should mark all of our, our interactions between believers as a genuine, deep-seated love for each other. If there's somebody that you know in the church, and hopefully not in this church, a church of this size, but if there's somebody that you just find completely annoying, maybe it's me. <laughs> I don't know. I, hopefully not. But if there's somebody that you find completely annoying in the church, uh, you have to love them if there's someone for whom Christ has died. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you need to uh, 
I'm sorry. <laughs> I need to take a second. Uh, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm sorry. I need a second. Okay. Uh, yeah. If there's somebody, if there, if there's somebody uh, that you find extremely annoying in the church, uh, and again, hopefully uh, that's not the case. At a church this size, that would be pretty obvious. But uh, if there's somebody that you just find extremely annoying, there's a there's a personality flaw that, that you just don't get along with them. I'm not saying that you need to go get coffee with that person every single week. Right, that you need to you need to become best friends with that person. But what I am saying is that you need to love that person. With a with not a fake love that you just put on a mask and pretend to love that person, but you genuinely need to have a love for that fellow brother or sister. Because if their personality quirk was not enough for Christ to not die for them, then it is definitely not enough for you to stop loving them. If, they, if whatever it is that you find annoying, Christ still died for them. So you need to still love them. A genuine, deep-seated love for one another. And that gets harder, especially if you believe you've been wronged by somebody in the church. If you believe somebody has, has hurt you in one way or another. Matthew 18, Jesus gives us a way to deal with that within the church. God's not okay with sin in his church. God is not okay with believers wronging one another. So there is a way to deal with that in the church. But, but what we see in Matthew 18 in, in, in church discipline is that either we confront the believer with love and gentleness and they repent because there's someone that, who, who believes in Jesus as we do, someone who has been rescued and redeemed by Christ. And so they repent and they, they, they ask for forgiveness and they are uh, restored in the family or they get to the end of the process and we realize that they really never followed Jesus to begin with. And so they're not actually unified and you weren't actually wronged by a fellow believer because there's someone whose life is marked by sin and brokenness and death. And so your approach to them is the same, to love them, to hope that they come to know Jesus. Because at the end of the day, we need to bear with one another in love. Because we are all people who God loves immensely. If we are in a church, then we are, uh, fu- uh, we are a church full of people who are loved by God, who have been redeemed by God, who have placed their faith in Jesus. So we need to love one another and put up with each other in love. And if there are things that, that we dislike, if there are things that we disagree with, if things that we feel like we've been wronged, we just bear with them in love. Guide them, direct them, but trust that the Holy Spirit, who is the same Holy Spirit within within us, is guiding and directing them as well. We see in verse 4, gives us more background to this idea. Uh, Verse 4, it says, there is one body and one spirit. So there is only one church in terms of the the global body of Christ that, that has manifested itself in local churches and local bodies, but there is only one Uh, international body of Christ. There are not different tiers or different levels within the church, right? There isn't a first-class Christian and then an economy-class Christian. Like there's, there, there are not different tiers and levels of Christianity. There's one body of Christ. And you have not ascended any higher than any other believer in the church. You're all on the same level. There's 
one body, and there's one spirit, the same Holy Spirit that is within you is the same Holy Spirit that is within other brothers and sisters in Christ. He goes on and says, there's, uh, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your calling. And so if we have placed our faith in Jesus, we are looking forward to the day when Christ will come back and we will be resurrected and we will spend forever in eternity with God, in the presence of God, enjoying him for, forever. And we are looking forward to that day when there's no longer sin and death and we have eternal life. And we are, we are longing for and looking forward to that day. And that's the same hope for every believer. Like that's the same future that we are all looking forward to. There are not different hopes, different dreams, different futures that we're looking forward to. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, that's the future that we're looking forward to. And it's the same across the board. There's only one hope that we share in our calling. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Again, the repetition of the word one, that we share all of these things. We have all of these things in common. We are worshiping the same God. And we've been set free and redeemed by the same Lord. So we need to be a people that are promoting the unity of the church. Because we should be unified as people worshiping the same Lord and redeemed by Jesus. It says there's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So the one God that we worship, the one God that we serve, has encompassed all things. Like he is he has transcended all space and time, and so there's nothing we can point to to worship other than God. So we should all be unified and united on this one object of worship. Our eyes and our thoughts should be transfixed on this one being. So we should be unified. And we need to be people who promote the unity of the church. We need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called and promote the unity of the church. Uh, I have, uh, each of us here, have last names. Right, my last name is Carter. And my family told me every time we'd go out the door as a family growing up, hey, don't break rule number one, which uh, for us was don't embarrass the family. Right, don't, don't, uh, don't bring down the name Carter. Right, because you go out, you embody, uh, me and my sisters, we go out and we embody uh, Carter. And so when we interact with other people, what they think of the Carters is, what they, is how they think of us. And how we make them think, we're going to make them think certain ways about the Carters. So they always told us, don't embarrass the family, don't break rule number one. Because our name is Carter. Well, we all have the name of Christ. We are all part of the body of Christ. And we are unified in that one fact. We have all been set free and redeemed by Jesus. That is our last name, and that unifies and brings together every single one of us. So we've been, brought, uh, we've been saved from sin and death by the blood of Jesus. So we need to be a people that promote unity. We talked about it as we looked through Acts. We need to be a people that are meeting each other's needs for the sake of unity. We need to be a people that are bearing with each other in love. We need to be a people that are recognizing the inherent value and worth of fellow believers because we're all on the same page and we're all people for whom Christ has died. We need to be a people that are promoting unity within the church. The second thing Paul calls us to do is to encourage growth. Look with me in verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure 
of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So what we see here is, yes, we're all unified, but we're not monolithic, right? We are all different by the grace of God. Every single one of us has different gifts that have been given us by the Holy Spirit. He says here that Jesus has given us these gifts, and he quotes from Psalm 68. That, uh, and what's going on in Psalm 68 is talking about God, how God is ascending his mountain, that God has, is, is staking his kingdom. It says he is, when he ascends his mountain, when he brings forth his kingdom, he carries with him all these captives and he gives gifts to men who are going to worship and glorify him. What, what Paul does here is he says, that's God, yes, but that's God the Son. It's talking about Jesus Christ, and that's what the following verses do. He's, he's, he's laying out his case that this is actually talking about Jesus. Because when it says he ascended, that means that he descended at some point. It's talking about Jesus Christ who came to earth added humanity to his deity. So he descended, and then he is now ascended, having conquered sin and death. And he's carrying with him, when Jesus Christ went back into the presence of God the Father, he carried with him a host of captives. He had put to death, uh, and he, he, had, he had eliminated, he had uh, stopped and ended the reign of sin and death, and he has, he has carried with him a host of captives. And he gave gifts to men. Gifts to his church. We see in verse 11 that he gave some as apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. That's probably better translated pastor teachers with a dash there. It's one idea. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. So God has given some people specific gifts with a, a specific calling for the church. Right? There are some that he, give, that he gave as apostles initially. He gave some as, a, as prophets. And we can talk about whether those still exist or not. But we do know that he gave some as evangelists, and he has given some as pastor teachers like me, where he's given us callings on our lives, and he has gifted us to pursue and to fulfill those callings. And so there are some who are called to fill particular roles in the church. But notice, he doesn't say that he has given these people, he, that he's given pastors and evangelists to do the ministry for the church. He says he has given the pastors, the evangelists, he's given them to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So my role is not to do ministry for you. My role is to equip you and prepare you to do the work of ministry, specifically to equip you and to prepare you to help the church grow in the image of Jesus. It is not just my responsibility to help the church grow into the image of Jesus. It's also your responsibility as people who've been gifted and called by God to help the church grow into the image of Jesus. That's why he says, for the work of ministry, namely for the building up of the body of Christ, until, verse 13, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the goal that we're all pursuing is that we all need to be encouraging growth in the body of Christ, using our gifts and abilities, our backgrounds, our ideas, using those to help the church grow in the image of Jesus so that we all can become mature believers. That looks like verse 14, not being children anymore, tossed to and fro 
by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And so if we are shallow believers, if we're people who have claimed to place our faith in Jesus, but there's no depth there, we have not grown up into the image of Jesus, then anybody can walk through those doors and say that something is true and say that something is God's design for us and we will be carried about and tossed to and fro following whatever the culture says is right, following whatever uh, preachers and teachers say is right. But we need to be people who are confident and sure about who Jesus is, people who know Christ and know what he's called us to so that we're not, dr- we're not drifting and and. and going to and fro, just following whatever culture says is right. But we are people who stand firm and are growing into the image of Jesus. So instead of being people tossed to and fro by the waves, rather, verse 15, speaking the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We need to be people who, are, who know each other well enough to speak the truth and love to one another so that we collectively can grow in the image of Jesus. He says, uh, again, if he wasn't clear, he says it in verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Again, the work of building, the work of growing in the image of Jesus isn't just from one person, it is from the whole body, every joint working properly, doing what we have been called to do, using our gifts and abilities, pushing one another to grow in the image of Jesus. Our approach to church, our approach to ministry should not be, I need to grow myself. Our approach should be, how can I help you grow? How can I use what God has given me, my gifts and abilities, my talents, my perspectives, how can I use what God has given me to help you grow in your faith, to grow in the image of Jesus? And if I'm helping you grow and you're helping me grow, then we collectively as the body are going to grow in the image of Jesus. So that we as a church can look like Christ. Because if I go out and I look like Jesus in the community, but one of you goes out and makes a mockery of the name of Jesus, then all that that people are going to see is a mockery of the name of Jesus. A whole group of people are going to know Jesus only by what you do and how you teach them and how you instruct them and what Jesus looks like. So my goal is not for me to look more like Jesus. My goal is for all of us as a group to look more like Jesus so that we as a church can go exude Christ's likeness, so that we as a church can confidently proclaim who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That needs to be our goal. We need to promote unity of the body, and we need to encourage the growth of the body. My, name, my last name is Carter, but my first name is Britton, and, and that is unique to me and my family. And that's my name. So I have a unique way that I don't embarrass the family. Like, I have a unique way that I make my parents and grandparents proud. My little sister, Becca, is studying to be a nurse, and, and that is something that I could never do. I, w- I physically would, would faint and pass out if I had to come anywhere near a needle. And, and yet my little sister is studying to become a nurse, and she's going to make my family proud uh, and, and has already made my family proud by doing that. So the way that she makes my parents and grandparents proud is different than me. Like, I, I'm still in school. I'm still uh, I'm pursuing a doctorate, and, and I like to write and communicate ideas. Those are things that Becca never will do. Like, as soon as her nursing program is done, she is out of school. She hates it. 
And, and that's fine. There's a different way that I'm going to make my parents and grandparents proud. And it's as Britain. And she's going to do it as Becca. But at the same time, we're all Carters. Every single one of you has a unique way that you're going to help the church grow in the image of Jesus. But the, at the same time, we are all the same. And that we are all people who have been set free from sin and death. So we need to be a people who are promoting unity. And we need to be a people that are using what God has given us to encourage the growth of the body of Christ. When we do those things, we will be a people who foster authentic community. We will be a people who, who create an atmosphere that is loving and kind and caring and pushing each other further in the image of Jesus. What does that look like for you? How do you need to promote unity and encourage growth in the church? Are you somebody that is bringing the church together or are you somebody that is promoting division and disunity in the church? Are you somebody that is trying to grow yourself, or are you somebody that is using what God has given you to help the church grow in the image of Jesus? In just a moment, we're going to pray, and then we're going to sing. And as I pray, I want you to take a moment. I want you to pray for yourself that, that God would open your eyes to whether you are promoting unity and encouraging growth, or whether you're pursuing an independent individual consumer faith. This only works. We can only be the church God has called us to be if we are all fostering authentic community. People ask why we chose the word foster. And I, I'll admit it's not my favorite word in the English language to use there, but the idea is that we are all responsible for this authentic community. We are all responsible for the unity of the church and the growth of the church in the image of Jesus. You can't just enjoy it. You have to promote it and foster that. So are you promoting and fostering authentic community in the church? Are you do using what God has given you to help fellow believers look more like Jesus? Or are you just enjoying the benefits of it and going home? So as I pray, take a moment and lift up yourself to the Lord. And ask how you can better foster authentic community in the church. Some of you, what you need to do is for the very first time, you need to place your faith in Jesus. Because you don't share what we all share. You're not part of God's family, the church, because you've never worshipped Jesus as Lord. You've never been set free from sin and death. If that's you, and as we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. I would want nothing more than just to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus, to enter into his family. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, pray that we would be a people who, who foster authentic community, that we would be a people who are devoted to promoting unity of the body. We would be a people who encourage one another to grow in our faith so that we collectively as a group can look more like you. I pray for every person here. God, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, who's never been set free from sin and death, who's never been redeemed, Father, I pray that this morning they would enter into your family, That's, that this morning we can celebrate as they enter into your body, the church. And we can celebrate a new brother or sister in Christ. Father, I pray that every single one of us who knows you and claims the title of brother or sister, Father, I pray that we would be concerned with one another, helping each other grow. We love you and praise you. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.